Welcome back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. It's Sermon Sunday, so we'll post today's sermon from Christ Church Conway on Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. Well, we've been working through the parables of the kingdom in Mark chapter 4, and there's been this common theme in these parables of this seed that is planted. And it hasn't always stood for the same thing. It's, it's always been in some way related to the Word of God, as we saw in the parable of the four soils, the sower sows the Word, and as we saw last week in the parable of the seed growing. But here in, in this parable of the mustard seed, uh, the seed is the kingdom itself that is planted. And, and the idea that we have here, if last week we could summarize the parable we looked at, the parable of the seed growing is the process of the kingdom, the process of kingdom growth, that the seed, the word of God is sown and, and in God's providence, it grows up. Here we can talk about this parable as announcing the result of kingdom growth. And we still get some of the process ideas, though, don't we? As Jesus dives into this parable and and asks, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? He compares it to this particular seed, this mustard seed, which is tiny. Now, some people, this is a, a side note, that's kind of an apologetic side note. Some people look at this parable and, and the way it's recorded in Matthew, where, where the par- the mustard seed is said to be the smallest of all seeds, and say, ah, there's an error in the Bible. Well, that's just foolishness. Of course, just like we will speak in literary ways and use hyperbole to make a point, that's just how language works. That's just how communication works. Jesus did the same thing. So we don't have to hold him to some scientific standard by which we can say, see, there's much smaller seeds than that. That's ridiculous. But I bring it up as this side note only because that's an objection that at times is actually made by some people. And sometimes we don't know what to do with things like that. But remember, Jesus was a man. He was a human and spoke in human communication with all of its poetics and and all of its flourishes and, and all of that to make his point. And that's totally fine. It doesn't make it any less true. So back to the point of the parable. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Here's the thing that we're looking at. As we think about the kingdom, what Jesus is wanting us to see is that it begins tiny. It's, it's this tiny thing at the start. Now, this already is, is different, perhaps, than what we want of a kingdom or even what we expect of the kingdom of God. But in fact, he's not even announcing anything new here. If we just journey back through the story of the Bible, we see that, yes, indeed, the kingdom of God started excruciatingly small with one man, Adam, and his wife, Eve. And then it got reset and and started small again with Noah and his family. 
And then as it gets focused, God calls this one man, Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and says, to you, I will give this land and I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to many nations, right? This Abrahamic covenant that we've talked about so many times. But here's the the comedy of that whole scene. Abraham didn't have any kids and his wife was barren and had been for some time. They were old when this went down. But God makes these promises. I'm going to make your name great. From you, old man Abraham, and you, old barren Sarah, from you, nations will come. I mean, you you couldn't hardly imagine a smaller start to the kingdom of God than a couple who had no kids and were barren and were, besides that, just past the age of having children to begin with. Yet this is exactly where we see the people of God begin. But then we move on and and, and the story continues and, and we see Moses. And again, it's a small start, isn't it? You've got this guy who is scared to speak and, and being sent to speak to the most powerful king in all of the earth at the time. You, Moses, who were who scared to speak, go talk to Pharaoh. Right? This is like sending someone with, with horrible stage fright and, and, and who doesn't like to talk to people that they know. Hey, go talk to the president of the U.S. or the queen of England or, or whoever it may be. You know, whatever power. Go talk to them. I, I struggle to talk to my spouse in complete sentences. And you want me to, to go before the sovereign that, that's over the most powerful nation in the world? Are you kidding me? But here's what's comical about this whole situation. What he wanted to tell him, what God wanted Moses to announce to, to, Mo, uh, to, to Pharaoh, the request he was supposed to make is, hey, let my people go. See, what God was doing was he was taking these people who had, in God's providence, found themselves enslaved in Egypt without a land, with barely a name, with nothing... And he was going to go and make them into this great nation that he had been talking about since the time of Abraham. Again, how small of a start can you come up with? We're going to take these people that have no standing in this world, who are enslaved, and, and, and don't even have stuff to take with them, so they've got to ask the Egyptians for stuff. And we're going to use them to go start... A kingdom. And of course, then you get to Joshua. And again, it's small beginnings, isn't it? Joshua, you know, the the spies go out and they're like, oh, we're like grasshoppers before these people. They're stinking huge. There's no way. But God's telling this little slave nation that's been wandering around in the desert with no place to call their own. You go into the land of Canaan where there are all of these incredible established peoples and all of these incredibly trained warriors and you go take that land. Again, small beginnings. And then you've got King David, who was literally small. I mean, that's kind of that's part of the point of the story. 
They tried to, they tried to have a big glorious beginning. Let's pick Saul. But he was an absolute train wreck of a king. And so God's like, no, how about David? The little shepherd boy, the youngest born. Take him. He'll be a great king. And indeed he was. But then the Israelites find themselves exiled. And a few, as we read in the book of Ezra, go back to begin rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, and then later rebuilding the wall. Again, small beginnings. Hey, here are these people. They've already been conquered by two different nations. The northern half of them got conquered by Babylon, Assyria. The southern half of them got conquered by Babylon. Let's start something with them. They seem capable. But remember, this is the point all along. We go back to Deuteronomy and we find God saying to the people of God. Now listen, real close. When you get there, when you get to the promised land and you look, don't think for a second. I'm embellishing. Don't think for a second that you doing this has even a little bit to do with you. Don't roll up in there and think like, ah, we're the business. We're what's up. Because you're not, God said. Y'all were nothing. I made you everything you are. You're stiff-necked, stubborn, foolish people. You're the smallest of all the people. I'm going to do something great. And that's their story the whole time. And that's their story when they're coming back from exile. It wasn't their grandiose Oh, man, the Israelites, we need to stay scared. Man, nobody was worried about them. It was because God worked through a pagan king to send them back at that pagan king's command to start doing something again. Small beginnings. And they're even told in Zechariah because they get back and they start to catch on. That like, hey, we're, we, we're not that special. And this temple that we're building, it's not even that special. And, and we've talked about this before. We read in Ezra where, where they're rebuilding the temple and the old guys who had been around for a little bit and seen the previous temple, they see this new temple and they're like, oh man, this is not what we were expecting. And they cry. Everybody else is throwing a party. You got these old sad guys over here crying because they get it. But then there's the prophet Zechariah who reminds them, hey, hey, look, guys, chin up. Don't despise the small beginnings. That's how God does it. Something cool is still going to happen. And you've got Haggai reminding him like, hey, look, I see you. You're crying. Don't sweat it. Once again, I'm going to shake things up and it's going to be fantastic. And how does he do that? Well, he sends this poor carpenter whose dad died early who was born to a virgin. You've got this whole story that, I mean, man, talk about small beginnings. This woman, you know, by the Spirit, I'm not saying that because I don't believe that's what happened. I'm just saying I think people might have had a hard time coming around to that reality. By the Spirit, I got pregnant before I was married. Right, okay. But that's the reality, right? This poor guy who apparently was nothing to look at, born into this poor family from the city of Galilee. I mean, even his own disciples, when they hear about him, they're like, what good comes from Galilee? Are you kidding me? No, we're not following him. So, so God's big plan to shake things up was again, small beginnings. 
And what this guy did, this Jesus guy, was he went and got himself killed. He rode into town when everybody was expecting, ah, the kingdom, here it comes. He rides into town on a donkey. Right? I mean, look, that would have been much more common in their day than our day. But even then, you get the comedy of it, right? He's not on this big stallion. Now, he'll come back that way, we're told in the book of Revelation, but that wasn't how it went down. See, God was planting this tiny seed of a kingdom, and it was growing up. But he never really does this like big, it's always these small seeds that keep getting planted. Or if we want to be like super typological, it's this same small seed that gets, keeps getting planted over and over. Deal with it however you want. The point is, it never starts with much. And then you've got these apostles. And they're the ones that are going to carry the message. And what are they told to do? Hey, go tell people this story. Again, like how small of a start can you imagine that the way this is going to happen, the way this kingdom is, is going to continue to, to, to come into fruition is by fools like me standing up and talking for a while. Are you serious? That's the plan. That, that's our big plan. Guys like me are going to stand up in front of people like you and tell a story about a guy who, who we claim lived, got himself good and killed, and then rose from the dead. And that, my friends is going to establish and, and, and see and, and cause the flourishing of the kingdom of God. There's just nothing about this story that's, that's this big thing that we would expect big results from. And that's the beauty of it. Because it's all pointing to this fact. At every stage in the story that we've looked at, it's all pointing to this fact. That it is God who does it, just like we saw last week. This tiny seed was planted. And from that, God is going to bring this enormous and glorious kingdom for himself. And, and it is going to be enormous and glorious. This mustard seed, uh, we're told from scholars who know a whole lot more about this stuff than I do. One in particular named R.T. France. If you ever want a good commentary, if there's one that he wrote, it's good. And he wrote a commentary on Mark. It's excellent. And he tells us that this is the black mustard is the particular variety of mustard seed. I have no idea how he discerned that. But that's what everybody agrees. That's the type of mustard plant this was. And it does turn into this tree. It's not like a little small, you know, green like like you know, mustard greens. It's this bigger tree variety of mustard. And birds do, in fact, come and nest in it. And that's what's going to happen with the kingdom. Is that even though what we sow, even though what God has sown for all these centuries is this tiny thing, something glorious is going to happen. So here's what this reminds us of. 
Here's what this teaches us for how we live right now in light of the gospel. We don't get to look at the the humble beginnings of the church or even the, the, the humble state that the church may or may not presently exist in at any particular time and decide whether this is a viable project or not. That's backwards thinking. Because the, Jesus is telling us that it's precisely from this humble beginning that something grand is going to grow. That's why we don't have to come up with a new way to do it. We just keep doing this humble thing. I, I keep giving you bread and wine and keep telling you about Jesus. And that accomplishes something great in all of us and in the world. And so we can, we can take hope in that. We can have hope that, no, what Jesus has said is going to happen is actually going to happen. But then when we look at what he says is going to happen, all of a sudden we realize, oh, wait, this is just full of great biblical theology. He says that the branches are so large that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. We, we read Psalm 104 and saw that that's just a statement at one level. It's just a statement of the blessing of the place of God. That it's a place of comfort. It's a place of protection. It's a place of, of life. It's, it's a place of, of community. It's a place of all these different things that we can tease out of that, right? But if we look a little bit deeper, we start to realize something else. This idea of, of birds coming in and nesting in the shade of a tree that, that has grown from nothing has a rich biblical history. Particularly, we look back at the book of Ezekiel and we, we read this in Ezekiel chapter 17. Therefore, he said, I will, uh, therefore, thus says the Lord, nope, that's verse 19. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain, right? I'm going to plant something tiny. Boop. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord I will bring the I will bring low the high tree and make the high uh, make high the low tree dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish I am the Lord I've spoken, I will do it. Now, we don't have to wonder whether God was just really into botany at this moment or whether he was making some other point. He was making some other point. He was talking about David being planted, this little shoot who would grow up, and all these birds would come in. We see pictured, again, in other places, Daniel 4, for one, are the nations, the bounty of the earth. 
He's promising that I'm going to do something that is so great that all the people of the earth are going to be brought in and are going to find shade and and life and comfort and rest in what I'm about to do. That's what Jesus is picking up on here in this passage. This idea that, that what's going to happen is the kingdom is going to grow up and people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation are going to come in and find shelter in the kingdom of God and find safety in the kingdom of God and find rest and comfort in the kingdom of God. And, and this is exactly what God said he would do with Abraham. You will be a blessing to every nation. See, Jesus is just telling these realities, these these announcements of, of this gospel that is inclusive of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that was never intended to be about one family or or one geopolitical nation or even one ethnic group that gets scattered everywhere. It was never intended to be about that. It was about everyone being brought under the sovereign and gracious reign of God. And what Jesus is reminding us of is that the small beginnings of this kingdom don't speak to the reality of its fulfillment. That's how I designed it to work. But we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with this idea of things starting small. And we we have this tendency to think, well, if that small of a thing will produce this result, maybe I should try to plant something a little bit better. Maybe we should spruce it up a little bit. We, we struggle with these lines of thinking for two reasons. One, we struggle to trust that what God has said will work will actually work. That telling this story, that giving this humble meal, that that's actually going to produce spiritual fruit in people. We struggle with that idea if we're honest. And we struggle with this idea that what we're going to do isn't going to be the glorious end. We want the glory now. We we don't want to be part of planting something small. We, We want it to blow up. Because we want the glory for ourselves. See, that's our struggle. And when you see Israel wander away from God, that's what they're always dealing with, isn't it? It's the same idea that got Adam and Eve in the garden. Pride and unbelief, right? We we struggle to trust that what God said is actually going to do the trick. And we struggle to be satisfied with the trick that he's trying to do in the first place. Because it doesn't involve near enough glory for you and I. It involves all sorts of glory for him, good for him. Doesn't involve near enough for you and me. And so what we do is, is we go, okay, well, how can we improve on this? How can we, how can we make this a little more glorious thing? And, and to, to build on the analogy, we, we, we dispense with the mustard seeds and we find, you know, a, a, a tulip bulb or a, or a daffodil bulb, or, or probably a better analogy is an orchid bulb, right? And we plant it. 
And it grows. And it's got all of this self-referential glory. But it's the most fragile thing we could have planted. Have you ever tried to keep an orchid alive? It's ridiculous. I don't know why those are the plants we give people. It's like, here, watch this die. (laughs) And they're just this skinny little stick with this bloop right on the top. Like it provides no comfort, no shade, no life, no, no security for anything. An ant can't take comfort in its shade. But it's beautiful. It's glorious. See, when we start trying to do things beyond giving the word of God and trusting that, no, this is what's going to happen and believing that, no, the, the, the kingdom is going to grow up. It is going to be amazing. I don't have to somehow bring it about. I don't have to fear that it's going to happen. I don't have to worry that it doesn't look big and powerful right now. How much energy have we spent worried that we might somehow lose and that's look look with all of our political activism and and, and all this kind of stuff as it relates to to what we're doing with the gospel if we're honest that's our concern that we might somehow lose Because we're already pretty small, pretty humble, pretty humiliated at times. We need to do something to make sure this is going to work. And it's a fool's errand. Not because it's not going to work, but because we already have the guarantee that it is going to work. That when Jesus, this, this humble seed got planted in the ground, what was going to happen was something glorious was going to grow up from that. That's us. And it will be us even more when he does finally bring us to the lasting glory of eternal life. See, the kingdom of God has these terrifically humble beginnings. But that shouldn't worry us at all. It should be zero cause for concern at all. Because the Bible tells us that's exactly how it was all going to work to begin with. It shouldn't make us doubt the certainty of the kingdom or the security of the kingdom or any of the promises of the kingdom, or the glory of the kingdom, or anything else. It will happen. Jesus is saying the way things look is just because that's how I do things. That's just how I work. Just wait. I'm going to shake things up once again, and it's going to blow your mind. You're going to look up one day and there under the tree of life gathered around this glorious tree that that, that reaches across both sides of this river of life that flows from the temple. You're going to look up and there is going to be the bounty of the earth dwelling in my security, in my kingdom forever. 
Guys, that's the hope that we have. That it's going to happen. And that the humble estate of things that we see now are no indication whatsoever that things are going awry. Not at all. And the small seeds that we've been called to plant are no indication that what's going to happen is going to be anything less than glorious. That's why we hope. That's why we have hope. Because what we're seeing is what Jesus says was supposed to happen. From these small seeds that are planted, something utterly glorious will grow. And we'll find shelter in it, along with everybody else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these promises, and for the sweetness of something so glorious coming from something so tiny, and for the comfort that we can have knowing that that we don't have to wonder at the humble state of things now or, or even the humble beginnings of things, that you are doing something to bring your glory and to include us in it. So would you give us the confidence of these promises? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.